I know some of you were at the conference, some of you weren't, so this is going to be an overview for some of you. Some of you, it's going to be an introduction, but uh, hopefully you'll get the, the heartbeat message of what the Answers in Genesis ministry is all about uh, in this uh, next 40 minutes. We're a Christian apologetics ministry. We're dedicated to helping Christians have a defense for their faith, as is outlined in 1 Peter 3.15. And uh, if you've not heard of us before, you may have heard of us, but just not recognize the link uh, with the fantastic Creation Museum right down in Kentucky. If you got in your car right now and they allowed you to go across the border, um, you could be there in about six and a half hours. And it's, uh, it's an amazing facility. It's one of the only places on the world that actually outlines biblical history in a museum format. It's just fantastic. And of course, now they've got the incredible Ark Encounter, the life-size Noah's Ark. I know some of you I met yesterday had been down there. Uh, just incredible. If you get a chance, um, it'll, it'll really bless your soul um, to see a life-size depiction of the Ark as is outlined in the, uh, in the scripture and just to see how large it is, longer than a football field, etc. But... Um, Oh, just before I get into this, actually, because the, the name of my talk here today is called The Seven Seas of History and Why They Matter. I'm going to be going through biblical history from creation, corruption, uh, catastrophe, confusion, Christ, cross, and consummation from the very beginning of the scripture to the very end and tie it into the gospel message. But just so you, uh, you know, any of you who didn't attend the, the conference yesterday, we've got left over some of our Gospel Reset books, which were gifted to any conference attendee, every family. So if you'd like to pick one up, you can go into our uh, resource center, sign up for our, our newsletter, and we'll give you a free copy of that book, which will again help you further understand the information that I'm going to be going through uh, this morning. So obviously... This is the most important message that the scripture discusses, right? Salvation through Jesus Christ. But the cross of Christ does not stand, you know, alone in history. It's tied into things that happened before, tied into things that ha will happen in the future. And of course, we're commissioned to go and share the gospel with people, but we need to do so in a comprehensive way. And of course, Matthew 13, 3 to 23 um, gives us the parable of the sower. There's different types of ground that we're going to sow the seed into. And, uh, you know, you've got the good soil, the hard soil, the rocky soil, etc. And I would say that in years past, Canada experienced much uh, better soil, you would say. We had a lot of plowed ground. You know, the Bible's held in high esteem in most Christian homes and our schools at one time actually, you know, allowed you to pray and do the Lord's Prayer. And sometimes Bible lessons came out of that. And of course, the church was very robust. But that's not what we're seeing today, is it, folks? We've got cold, hard, rocky, thorny ground out there. Because biblical authority has been undermined in our culture now for several generations. And that's really what the ministry of Answers in Genesis is all about, is to uphold the authority of the Word of God. So the attack on the authority of Scripture comes in a very specific way. And it's actually a very old attack. It's to get believers especially to doubt that authority and we can see uh, the Apostle Paul giving warnings here in 2 Corinthians 11.3 where he says, but I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. What's Paul referring to? He's referring to Eve in the garden. And Genesis 3.1 talks about it when it says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the, the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say? you shall not eat of the tree in the garden. 
Did God really say that, Eve? Is that really the way you need to interpret that? Or can you interpret it different ways? Can you be an autonomous person, separate from God, make your own decisions, decide what's right and wrong? Even though God's given a command, do not eat of that fruit because the day you do, dying you will die, Adam. You'll return to the dust, a physical death and of course a spiritual death. And it's always to get people to doubt the authority of the word of God. Can you really trust the Bible from the very first verse right to the end? When your pastor's preaching and he's going through passages very, very carefully, can you say, yeah, but there was gnawing doubts. You see, we see so many common objections to believing the Bible today. I'll talk to people and say, well, how do you even prove God exists? I mean, how do dinosaurs fit into the Bible? Why is there death and suffering if God's a good God? You know, aren't there contradictions in the Bible? What about carbon dating? Hasn't science proven evolution? What about ape men? How many people here have ever had a conversation with a non-believer and had these things come up? Yeah, it's, it doesn't take long, folks. You start chatting with people. And they continue, of course, how could Noah fit all the animals on the ark? And is there any evidence for a global flood? And what about the Big Bang? And et cetera, et cetera. You know, way back in 2000, George Barna, he's kind of like the Christian Gallup poll guy, does all the church studies. He determined that 70% of our young people from Christian homes that attend public schools in North America we lost them by age 18. But the Answers in Genesis ministry actually commissioned what was called the Beamer Report just a, a shorter while ago. And what that report showed is it's actually at age 13. By age 13, most young people from Christian homes that attend public schools, they've already checked out. Seven out of 10, if you sit down and really have a conversation with them, they say, well, you know, science has kind of disproven the Bible. You can't really trust the Bible, you know, as far as science goes. And that leads to doubt in all other areas. You see, there's an interesting interaction between Jesus and Nicodemus we see in John 3.12, where Jesus says to him, well, if I've told you earthly things and you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? I mean, the Bible does talk about earthly things. The Bible talks about things like biology, for example, where it says 10 times that God created kinds of creatures to reproduce according to their kinds. That's biology. That's a statement about biology, right? Um, by the way, what do we observe? Dogs make dogs and people make people and cats make cats. So seems to be pretty accurate. <laughs> but uh, you see, what the world teaches about biology is that one kind of creature slowly morphed into another kind of creature over millions of years. And if what the world's teaching about biology is true, then what the Bible says about biology is wrong. Um, how about geology? The Bible says there was a global flood, Genesis 6 to 9. The fountains of the great deep smashed open. There was 40 days of intense rain. What would you expect to find with all this rain, you know, hammering down and all the sediments and the biomass mixing together? At the end of the flood, the, the continents smash together. They come up, the water sheds. I'd expect to find billions of dead things buried in sedimentary layers if Genesis 6 to 9 was real history. Guess what I've seen all over the planet? Just that, billions of dead things in, in, in rock layers. But see, what the world has been teaching is, no, 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 there was never a great flood. Those sediments got laid down slowly over millions of years. And if you add them all up, it must have taken millions and millions of years. And so if what the world is teaching about geology is true, then what the Bible teaches about geology is false. Anthropology. The Bible talks about uh, God creating one man and one woman. And the Apostle Paul confirms that all people came from, those, you know, from, from that one man, that seed of that one man. And unfortunately, that seed is corrupt, which means everybody's a sinner, which means everybody needs a savior. It's integral to the gospel. 
But that's not what the world's teaching. The world's teaching that, you know, these ape-like creatures, these hominids grew a little bit smarter, you know, and taught ourselves how to talk. And then, ugh, ugh, we got a little bit more smarter. And then here we are talking about it. And if what the Bible teaches about anthropology is true, then what or the world is teaching about it is, then what the Bible teaches about anthropology is false. The Bible says that God created the, the, the earth first. He created the sun on day four. But that's not what the Big Bang teaches. The Big Bang teaches that the sun came first and then the earth came after that. And so what's happening is many people are just like, yeah, but is this just you know, mythology? Is it, can we really trust this part of the Bible? Well, if you can't trust this part of the Bible, why would you trust that part of the Bible? That's how I grew up as an atheist. That's how I thought when Christians approached me. Well, you don't believe this part. Why would I believe this part about the dead guy coming back to life? Science doesn't support that either. See, Luke 6.40 says, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he's fully trained will be like his teacher. Here's the question. Who are our children's teachers? Because if they keep imbibing this stuff, that's what they're going to end up believing. What our ministry is always championing, of course, is to have our thinking focus on God's word in every area. And I'm going to show you that you need a holistic Christian worldview. This isn't just Sunday and you don't just check your brain at the door and hallelujah, hallelujah, and you go back and then there's science. and No, no, no. It all fits together, folks. See, 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. If you hear something in contradiction to the word of God, take it, capture, uh, you know, capture it, examine it, and see whether it's true or whether it's false. Here's the landscape of history we're going to be discussing. We're going to start with creation. You know, and sometimes people will say, well, how do you, how do you even know there's a God, et cetera, et cetera? Or what, what evidence would you expect if God had created? Romans 1.20 says, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. This verse says that no one will stand on judgment day and say, there was no evidence of you, God. I couldn't see anything. No, the creation itself, what God made, is evidence of the creator. What was created is evidence of the creator. So I like to ask skeptics, well, what evidence would you expect to find if God had created? Because I'd expect to find evidence of design, and we see that everywhere. Uh, one of the most prominent examples I would show somebody is DNA itself. DNA is literally what they call the language of life. It's a coded language system. Uh, you know, like our alphabet, it's got four chemical letters, okay? And those four chemical letters get spread out, you know, spelled out in three-letter words called codons, and those spread out all the information for whatever genome you're talking about, dogs, cats, people, you know, grass, whatever. There's literally a lang language in every living thing on the planet. Now, where do coded language systems come from in our human experience? I mean, if you're walking down the beach and you look down and it says, I love Sarah scrawled in the sand, would it be logical to say, wow, look what the wind and the tide brought in? <laughs> would that be a logical conclusion based on what we know about language systems? I mean, if I, um, you know, had a blackboard and I popped up, uh, uh, you know, my name on the blackboard in chalk, um, the question is, where'd the information come from? If I wipe off the chalk, is there any information in chalk? No? Where'd the information come from then? Well, a hopefully intelligent mind, right? Manipulated the matter and created... You see, matter does not create information. The only thing that creates information is an intelligent mind. 
This is a great book by Professor Werner Gett. He's a, a brilliant Christian. He wrote the book, In the Beginning Was Information, and he makes the point that a code system is always the result of a mental process. It requires an intelligent origin or inventor. It should be emphasized that matter as such is unable to generate any code. But you know what? Every living thing on the planet, every ant, every blade of grass, everything has a genetic code in it. And it's more sophisticated than any code system we've ever created, which is great evidence that it must have come from the, most, uh, the greatest creator that we can imagine. By the way, Bible skeptics and atheists and evolutionists have admitted this. Here's Paul Davies uh, for the uh, Australian Center for Astrobiology, where he says, how did stupid atoms spontaneously write their own software? Nobody knows. There's no known law of physics able to create information from nothing. Hmm. Well, there's no known law of physics. Matter and energy doesn't do it, but an intelligent mind definitely can. Why is the doctrine of creation important, though? Well, you see, if creation isn't true and we can't trust it, then how can we really trust the New Testament authors that refer to it? For example, Jesus himself, when he's defending marriage in Matthew 19, 4 and 5, and he answered and said to them, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. That's the doctrine of marriage from the mouth of Jesus when he says, have you not read? What's he referring to? He's referring to the book of Genesis. Genesis 1.27, God created male and female. You know, that's a pretty controversial statement right now in culture, right? Jesus was quoting that directly. I mean, how does the lack of the authority of the Word of God affect culture? Well, you know, we've seen it here in Canada. We've seen it in the United States where all of a sudden marriage gets redefined. Why? Because we're no longer going to accept the biblical definition of marriage. We're going to now say, well, that was just a human construct. You know, us eight people got a little smarter. We figured out we were going to do marriage this way. Now we're going to do marriage this way. And why don't we just open it up to whatever? If marriage isn't defined by what the Word of God says, why can't it be anything? And aren't we seeing all sorts of different versions of marriage being popularized now? All sorts of relationships that are being championed in our culture. And once you go down that road, where do you stop? And by the way, does that affect the Christian church? Oh, yes, because you speak out against stuff like that now and you can be imprisoned for it. Um, how about the sanctity of life issue? Your pastor just mentioned how you're going to be in prayer for the abortion issue. We are not an animal. We are created in the image of God. As soon as that DNA, half from mom, half from dad, it comes together, you've got all the DNA that you need for that person. There's not going to be any more added. From the moment of conception to the moment you die, it's 100% human being. We are not animals. We're created in the image of God. So you're 100% human from the very beginning to the very end. And are you noticing in culture right now when that concept is abandoned, how vulnerable those two demographics are now? The most frightening place, I would say, right now, one of them would be an older person in our medical system with no advocate. You are vulnerable. You see, corruption and all these things we see going on in society, that entered in a very specific time in history. 
At the end of the creation, Genesis 1.31, God said everything was very good at the end of the creation. And Genesis 2.16 and 17, God said, And the Lord commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for that day you shall surely die. Everything was very good. God gave a warning as a test to see whether Adam would remain loyal to him and his word. If you do this, Adam, things will change. And of course, we know what happens. Death entered at a very specific time in, in, in history. Romans 5.12 reminds us just as uh, sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all have sinned. And the entire creation fell when Adam sinned. That's why there's bad things in this world. Man's rebellion caused sin and death to come into the world. Do you know that in the beginning, everything was eating plants before Adam fell? Yeah, it was that good that everything that had the breath of life in it was eating plants. Why? Because there was no carnivorous activity, no bloodshed, no death. That all happened after the fall. You see, this has an important, uh, it's an important issue with these earthly things. Take the concept of geology. You see, Many uh, Christians even are looking around the world and they're saying, seeing these rock layers with dead things in there and they're saying, wow, that must have happened over millions of years because that's what's commonly taught. But where are you going to put those millions of years in the, in the biblical timeline? God says he created in six days. Well, you know, maybe there was a gap between Genesis 1, 1 and 1, 2. Maybe each one of God's days aren't really like our days and maybe they were millions and billions of years or things like that. These kind of concepts are popularized because people try to stick those ideas from outside the Bible inside the Bible. They're not there. The Bible doesn't teach millions of years. See, the problem is where are you going to put them? If you put them in the six days of creation, here's what you're saying. Oh yeah, God used six metaphorical days to create and that's where the rock layers got laid down. Well, then that means what's in the rock layers got laid down prior to the end of the creation, which was very good. And Adam and Eve were in the garden and it was so good, but they were sitting on a bone pile a mile deep. You know what the bone pile records? Death. Suffering, cancer in the fossil record. Could those rock layers really have been laid down? God used cancer to create and at the end called it very good. Now you've got death before sin. I mean, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Genesis 3, 7, 19, or 17 to 19, because you have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you by the sweat of your face to dust, you shall return, Adam you see, you can't have death before Adam sins. You can't have the results of sin before it happened. Those millions of years never happened, folks. But many Christians have not made the connection here. You can't say that millions of years of death and bloodshed and disease is how we came into existence because if you do, you destroy the foundation of the gospel. And Psalm 11.3 reminds us if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? So we need to explain all that death we see in the rock layers. And how would we do that? Well, it's quite simple, Genesis 6 to 9, as I mentioned earlier. What would you expect the physical results of that event to be? Billions of dead things buried in rock layers. You know, this kind of uh, concept of incremental, uh, you know, uh, accumulation of sediments, when you actually look at the world around us, does that really make sense? These ideas of fossils being made slowly over millions of years, um, doesn't really hold when you go to a place like Joggins, Nova Scotia, 
my wife is from Nova Scotia. And you can go to this uh, area where the highest tides in the world come in and out and erode the cliff face along the shore very quickly. And you can see tree-like plants 30 feet tall extending through the sediments. See that yellow bar that just appeared? That's supposedly one million years of deposition according to Lyellian geology. Do dead trees staying around for millions of years? <laughs> as the sediments slowly creep in, folks? No, that thing got buried rapidly. That thing got buried catastrophically. What event could account for that in history? Ah, global flood. You see, we've seen the effects of catast uh, catastrophic events. Um, things like Mount St. Helens when it blew up in 1980, blew its top. All the sediments, all the, the, the hot steam and stuff like that created what's called a pyroclastic flow. Started flying down the sides of the mountains at, at highway speeds. And this picture you're looking at right now is the accumulation of rock that in three successive events, that's the rock that accumulated from that event. None of that rock was there prior to Mount St. Helens blowing up. See that center layer there, finely laminated? Over 13 feet of rock. Do you know how long it took to lay down? Three hours. <laughs> it doesn't take millions of years. That's why when you see things like soft tissue in dinosaurs now, we've seen that over 100 times. This was from 2005 when Mary Schweitzer, a paleontologist from the States, noticed a tyrannosaur had some strange material in the center, did some investigation, and those are the pictures she published in Science Magazine. Soft and stretchy, uh, soft you know, blood cells, red blood vessels, inside of a creature supposedly 70 million years old, which means that thing didn't die 70 million years ago. That thing died out very recently. There's ample evidence for a plain reading of the, the Word of God. Well, people will also ask us things like, well, where did the races come from? That's a races, you know, race issues now are very, very, uh, you know, popular in media and stuff. Many Christians don't know how to answer the questions of the day, typically because this is what they've been taught about where we all come from, which is not a biblical concept. See, if you want to know where the people groups came from, there's an event in Genesis 11 that explains it. It's called the confusion at the Tower of Babel. Remember, God had commanded the people to uh, you know, spread out over the world after the flood, and they disobeyed. And they got grouped together, and they tried to build this huge tower, and he confused their languages. Um, see, that's, we, we need to understand that we all come from two people, Adam and Eve. And then there was a bottleneck at the flood where there was eight people that got off the ark. And then they started to repopulate, and they immediately rebelled against God again. Remember, Acts 17, 26, Paul says, from one man, he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. So there aren't multiple races. That's a worldly concept. There's only one race, the human race. When people look at different people with different skin shades and stuff like that, it's, it's very easy to understand. We actually all just have a little bit more or a little bit less of the same stuff. We all have the same stuff. It's called melanin. Okay? We have at least two distinct kinds. One's a red-yellow kind, one's a black, blackish-brown kind. And you can take out your Punnett square, and you know, scientists like to use you know, little a, big, big A, big B, little b, uh, to you know, talk about genes, genetics inside you. You know, you've got dominant and recessive genes and so on and so forth. And so you know, people with really dark skin have a lot of the dominant genes for melanin, for color in your skin. And if you're like me, you know, people say, well, Cal, you're a white person. Actually, I'm not a white person. That's white. <laughs> if I was that, 
you'd be calling an ambulance, I hope, okay? I just don't have a lot of color, okay? I'm like a little A, little, you know, little B person kind of thing. People will ask, well, what, what, what shade do you think Adam and Eve were? Well, I would say they're probably medium brown. I would say that Adam and Eve, you know, when the Lord created the first two people, they ha probably had that complete, you know, scope of all the genetic information for color. Yeah, Adam would have had the big A and the little A and the big B and the little, little B, right? And then their offspring, depending on what you inherit from mom and dad, you could have had all colors of the rainbow in one generation. I mean, let me show you a, a couple of gals here. If you saw these two gals walking down the street chatting, you'd say, wow, look at the two, two friends. And many people would say, wow, they're two different races. No, they're actually twin sisters. Same mom, same dad. Except mom's a little darker, dad's pretty light. People say, wow, are they identical twins? But if you saw them walking down the street because of the way we're conditioned, what would you say? Oh, they're different races. There's not different races. There's one race, the human race. We all come from two people. It's kind of like a cake mix, you know? Adam and Eve have all the different ingredients and you can divvy them up different ways and get different, different uh, kinds. But just like the Lord says in his word, God created kinds to reproduce after their own kind. And it was at the Tower of Babel where God came down and confused the languages. And then you've got different people groups speaking different languages. They're, of course, going to marry and, and, and things like that. They're going to spread out over the world, and you're going to see some distinctions in culture. But that's people groups. That's not races. You see, what I was taught growing up is there was different ape men that turned into different kinds of, of people, and they actually would label them, you know, Caucasians and, and, and Mongoloids and Negroids and stuff like that. And they were said they were different races. That's where the whole concept of racism comes from. They think, well, there's different races, and some people think my race is superior to your race. Where did that idea come from? I mean, if you've ever watched European soccer where you see one of the dark-skinned players run out into the field and you see some of the fans up in the, the, the bleachers and they're making monkey noises towards that man, what exactly are they communicating to him by making monkey noises at him? Oh, maybe they've got this idea in their head that dark-skinned, hairy apes turned into Caucasians over millions of years, which is a very racist concept. Because when you make... Why is it monkey noises that are racist towards people with lots of melanin? You're closer to the apes. I'm superior to you. That's what they've got in their noggin. It is completely racist. It's completely anti-biblical. And then we've got the fifth C, which is Christ. Born of a virgin, born in the manger, why we celebrate Christmas. Everybody has that warm, fuzzy feeling, right? Our Savior's born. Why is this so important that we all come from two people? Because Isaiah 59.20 reminds us that a Redeemer will come. Hebrews 2.14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, God became a man. He took on flesh. He became one of us. And only the descendants of Adam can be saved. And there's only one Savior, Jesus. If there's different races on this planet that aren't related to Adam, they can't be saved. If there's aliens flying around the universe that aren't related to Adam, many Christians have, don't have a comprehensive worldview, though. 
And of course, then we come to the reason why we can be saved, Christ on the cross. Romans 5.18 says, Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to the justification and life for all men. This is the event that took place, the reason why we can be saved. People in the Old Testament looking forward to the coming Messiah, us looking back to Christ on the cross, and he rose again in three days, proving his credentials as the perfect, sinless son of God. And all of us are going to die and stand in front of God, and we will have two options. We will either present our own resume and say, look at all the reasons why I'm good enough to be with you in eternity, or you're going to borrow Jesus' resume (laughs) as a substitute because he's the only one that's worthy. That's why he came. Now, what's the future going to be like? The Bible talks about a time of consummation, a new heavens and a new earth. Christ will return. Those who've put their faith in him will be with him in eternity. Those who rejected Christ will spend eternity in hell, separated from him. A permanent spiritual death. That's what the Bible teaches from beginning to end. And you can see the connections. Can you see how the perfect creation in the beginning, no sin, no death, no struggle, no you know, bloodshed, and in the consummation it will be the same. Not even potential for sin. Death, corruption enters into the world. Jesus pays the penalty for that corruption, for that sin. The last Adam steps in to pay the penalty for the first Adam. The catastrophe, the first time that God judged this planet, because God is going to judge this planet. The second time by fire, but the first time was by water. First by water, then by fire, the global flood, the catastrophe. The, The New Testament describes that Noah wasn't just a boat builder. He was a preacher of righteousness. There's a coming judgment. There's only one way to be saved. You got to enter this door on this ark or you don't get saved. And today, Jesus is the door you enter. And can you see how us all being related? You know, we all got scattered all over the world, but we still all need the same Savior, the same Messiah. You can see how important that is to our theology. I mean, I used to work in youth ministry and stuff, and, you know, sometimes kids would be like, oh, man, this is, church is boring. Were you bored this morning, folks? (laughs) I hope not. I mean, think of what we just talked about here in a very, very short period of time. We've talked about science. We've talked about biology and geology. We've talked a little philosophy. We've talked a lot about theology. We've talked about things like ethics. We've talked about morality. We've talked about history. We've talked about logic. The Christian faith is a dynamic, living faith. The word of God is a living word. But what's happened to many of us is we've had our lives segmented. Well, there's this and there's this, and then I go to church and I read my Bible. It's all holistic, folks. It all works together. You don't segment your faith in Christ from the rest of the world. It all needs to make sense. And when you start realizing that, everything comes alive for your faith. It's amazing. There is tons of evidence for the creator God. As a matter of fact, 
You look in the book of Job, it even says that, you know, look at the, 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 the beasts and they will teach you, the heavens and they will tell you, or the bushes of the earth will even cry out creation. Use an example from one of the sessions I did yesterday. Show you this uh, plant here. It's called a, a bee orchid. Pretty cool little plant. It's pretty obvious why they call it a bee orchid because it looks like a bee, <laughs> okay? And the bee orchid's very unique because not only is it shaped like a bee, but it's also colored like a bee. And not only is it shaped and colored like a bee, but it's also fuzzy like a bee. You ever see a bee? They're all fuzzy, right? And not only is it fuzzy and shaped and colored like a bee, it also smells like a bee every now and then. It smells like a female bee in heat every now and then because it produces a pharaoh, like a perfume, that attracts male bees. And it's just fascinating to see how our Lord put this thing together. Because here's the schematic of a bee orchid, okay? Now, let's just look at the, the one on the left side. You'll see the labellum. That's the part that looks and shaped and colored like a bee, okay? And I kept it PG on the weekend. I'll do the same here on Sunday. Um, these plants have both male and female parts. Enough said? Okay, so we've got the, uh, you know, the, the, the stigma there. Uh, that's the female part. And then you've got the pollinium. That's the shaft with the seed in it. That's the male part. Now, how do these plants reproduce? It's fascinating. Um, what happens is Mr. Bee's flying along one day and he's like, mm, and he looks down and he thinks he sees a female bee. And he's like, whoa. And so whoop, he lands on it. But he lands on this plant and the way he mounts, his head comes into contact with that pollinium there. And it goes and sticks to his head. Now, not only does it have this glue, but it has this release mechanism, right? So it's just stuck to his head. But it also has a, a mechanism that then bends that thing down to a 90-degree angle. So he's flying around with this thing on his head. Like, oh, this is weird. What's her deal, right? But you know, guys, <laughs> one-track mind. So he's like looking around. Oh, perfume. And he thinks he sees another bee. So he lands. And the way he mounts, because that thing is perfectly bent, it inserts itself into the female part and you get more bee orchids. <laughs> Evolve that. <laughs> Folks, how does a plant with no brain know to shape itself like a bee? It's not, it's not looking around. Like, oh, bees are this color. I should make myself that color. They're not tactile. They're not like, oh, bees are fuzzy. I need to be fuzzy. <laughs> They don't have a chemical kit inside them. They're not sitting there going, oh man, that stinks. Perfect, a female bee in heat. This is the perfect one. You can know that God exists because what he created, what he made. That's what the scripture says. But see what the world has been teaching for so long now has been embedded in people's minds and atheism is on the rise and we need to shine light into darkness. This was an American atheist Christmas campaign just a little while ago. No Adam and Eve means no need of a savior. It also means that the Bible can't be trusted as a source of unambiguous literal truth. It's completely unreliable because it begins with a myth and builds on that as a basis. No fall of man needs no need for atonement and no need for a redeemer. You know it. That was the Christmas campaign for the American atheists. Ho, 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 Merry Christmas. But see, they're correct. But what they're doing is causing doubt. They're sowing seeds of doubt all the time. How do you explain dinosaurs? Where'd the races come from? Why do you explain carbon dating? 
All those questions we covered on the weekend. So I hope you take advantage of the, the filming that was done and you can review the, uh, the information that we gave. Um, I will point you to the Resource Center. Um, we still have some, although, man, you guys were ravenous <laughs> yesterday. I couldn't believe it. We packed my Honda Pilot. I mean, it was like a wall behind Joshua and I, and you guys just consumed mass quantities. I said to Pastor Aaron this morning, years ago when I was starting to speak, I was always wondering why some churches you'd see more of a response with people wanting resources, and other churches seemed kind of, eh, right? And uh, a friend of mine at the time said, Calvin, it's the evangelistic temperature of your audience. If they want to share the gospel, they'll see the connection. They want to get equipped. So I encourage you to get equipped. There's still some material back there. For example, there is a, um, a DVD, not by myself, but by one of my uh, um, uh, co-speakers, co Bodie Hodge, who does a great uh, job doing a similar type of presentation. I will point you to our Answers magazine, which we have a special offer here at the conference. If you want to sign up for this incredible Worldview magazine, there's examples of it at the, the desk. But you can sign up for one, two, or three years, and we'll actually give you a free DVD uh, for each year that you sign up for. So if you want to get like a mini DVD library of our Answers DVDs, which answer the top questions that the skeptics are putting out there, uh, we'll give you that for free for a three-year subscription. If this is a new topic to you, this book absolutely changed my outlook on all of these things as a new Christian. Fantastic book called The Lie Evolution by Ken Ham. If you're wondering about those six days and the millions of years and you're like, oh, I didn't have a long time to talk about that here, you may want to check this out. We also have fantastic resources for young people. Remember what I said, it's by age 13 that most Christians are like, oh, you know, or kids from Christian homes are wondering about whether they can actually trust the Bible. Things like this book here, how many animals were on the ark? One of the most common objections, you could actually see Bill Nye say it to Ken Ham during the debate that they had, is look, there are millions of species of animals on the planet. There's no way one boat could have carried millions of, of, of animals. And that's absolutely true. But as Ken explained, the Bible says that God sent two of every kind of creature. So two of the dog kind and two of the horse kind and two of the, not, you know, uh, Pomeranians and Poodles and Pyrenees and Great Danes and no, two of the dog kind. And so this kind of uh, apologetic is very, very important uh, to understanding these things. Uh, we even have very good evangelistic tools, things like a special door for little kids. You can share the gospel with your little, little kids by making that connection again. Hey, there was one door on the ark and Jesus is the door today, etc. Uh, things like our Answers book series, which are fantastic. They're like the Answers DVDs, except in a book form. So you get a lot more meat in there. And there's four of those issues. We've got those uh, for teens as well. And of course, we've even got packs for little, little kids, which is just fantastic. Um, I was talking to our head of operations. I said, look, they, they almost cleaned us out in a lot of areas here. And she said, well, why don't we offer a free shipping code? If any of you do want to take advantage of any of the resources that I've mentioned that aren't in the... the the um, fellowship hall right now, you can actually get free shipping. You just go to our website, copy this down, event SFS. We'll keep that going for about two weeks. So anybody from this conference or this morning um, can actually get free shipping for anything that we ran out of. So you don't have to, to pay shipping if you want to go to our website and check that out. 
Thank you so much, folks. It's a pleasure to be here. It was so exciting. I was telling my wife, I'm just so encouraged to be here with, uh, with all of you. So I hope that was uh, encouraging for your faith. I hope that you check out the AnswersInGenesis.ca website. We've got a ton of uh, great video material uh, to encourage you and teach you as well. You can check that out on our uh, Answers in Genesis Canada YouTube channel. 